Welcome to the Goodness Podcast, the Middle East's first platform dedicated to tackling women's health in a real and honest way. I'm your host, Noor Tahini. My guest on the podcast today is Mitra Manesh. Mitra is the founder of Innermap, an innovative new mindfulness app, as well as the host of Lights On, a podcast offering support for a mindful life. She is a mindfulness thought leader, storyteller, and educator with over three and a half decades of experience. Mitra also teaches at the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center and has worked with the likes of Amazon and Dior. In this first part of our chat, we discuss the impact that the pandemic has had on our perception of reality and our ability to cope, as well as how to use the science of mindfulness to navigate anxiety during this time. Hi, Mitra. Hi, Noor. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm excellent, thank you. Thanks for dialing in all the way from California. Oh, it's a pleasure. I really love to connect with people, uh, especially in the Middle East, where I come from. Awesome. So, Mitra, you're a mindfulness educator. Mm -hmm. Correct. You must have your hands full these days. I've never been busier, believe me. I could work seven days a week from morning till night and I'm 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 stopped taking new clients. They have a waiting list right now because I really can't attend to all my clients. So we're in the middle of a pandemic, the environment's doing worse than ever. The Middle East is more unstable than it's been in a long time. What do you usually advise to people who are struggling with anxiety because of what's happening in the world around us, whether it's political or for more people, maybe it's related to the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing in a general sense, what I recommend is there is a time for us to zoom in to identify the problem. And there are times that we need to zoom out to see the solution. And when we get into anxiety sphere, it means that we are overdoing something. And that something is future because anxiety in its essence needs a future. Like sadness needs a past, anxiety needs a future. Because anxiety is worrying about the future. Is that how you would describe it? Absolutely. And it is that. Uh, Anxiety needs a future. Anxiety means I'm worried that something will happen or not happen or happen the way I don't want it to happen. So that's important for anybody with anxiety to know that anxiety needs a future. You must be not in the present moment if you're feeling a sense of anxiousness, which the extreme of it is anxiety or the medical term for it is anxiety. Yes, correct. So that's the time that we need to zoom out because of course we need to plan the future. If we didn't plan the future, you and I wouldn't be talking. A lot of things wouldn't Hmm. happen in the world. The problem is that I go to plan the future and I'm saying, okay, I need to plan. I need to plan. And then I plan and then I plan, plan, and then I plan, plan, plan. And now I'm over, over, over planning. And now I'm anxious. And I tell you where the root of this comes from. This actually happened uh, from the Newton time. Newtonian belief was that if you have enough information and if you make enough effort, you can actually determine the outcome, which was partially correct that I can 
determine the future, but based on the information available to me right now. So you and I made this appointment a long time ago. I did everything I could to be here on time and be present for this interview. However, if Wi-Fi wasn't working in Los Angeles, which by the way happened a few days ago, there was nothing I could do. My information, my planning was based on the assumption that everything that was working in that moment would be working in this moment. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this to take a point home that there is a time to let go of the planning because I've done my best and right after that, there is not much I can do because I don't know what will be taking place in that moment when that event takes place. Does that it's make almost sense? yeah when you were describing that I was almost thinking it's like holding a whole deck of cards in your hand but not having taken but but the person you're standing in front of has a joker card and it's like <laughs> it's that the joker card you don't actually know what the what the joker will symbolize and what it's going to do but there's this one card that can throw all your plans into the wind if it gets played Perfect, perfect example. I'm going to use that and borrow that. That's a great one. Exactly. Because you don't know what, what yeah. this joker will be representing. Exactly. It yeah. could be an ace. It yeah. could be an eight. So, yeah. yeah, correct. But would you say, though, that anxiety is a normal response to what's happening? In the first instance, yes. But you have to understand what we, what I work with, what the whole basis of mindfulness, which now is based on neuroscience. I teach at UCLA's School of Neuroscience and Human Behavior. I mean, that's a huge marriage that has taken place. The mindfulness, the wisdom of the East has married the science of, of, of the West. And now I'm teaching it at UCLA. Most of my students actually are from medical background and scientific background. So yes, the first stop is anxiety. You tell me, oh, Mitra, such and such happened. This virus is coming back. This is what's happening in this side of the world. The first anxiousness is like, oh God, yes. But then we have a say. We forget that we have a say. We are an active participant in this event. I may not be able to eradicate the problem, but I have a choice, free will, to interact with the problem in a different way. And that now is proven by scientific research. That's what exactly uh, neuroplasticity is, which means my brain, the way it functions, even though it was assumed by scientists until many, just, just recently, that I don't have a say, that's the way my mind is. Now they call it neuroplasticity of the mind. It's exactly what it says. It's like a plastic. It can be formed in many different ways. So I'm counting all of my teachings and coaching and training is based on the fact, and it is a fact now, that I have a hold, I have a say of how I would like to interact with the issue, challenge, task in, in front of me. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm counting on. And that's what all the training is. I can do something. In fact, I can even do something about the genetics that I have inherited. That's what is a you know, really interesting part of, of science and mindfulness right now, that I have a say. I cannot let go of the genetics that I have inherited, but I can really turn the volume up on those genes with the choices I make, or I can turn it down with the genes mm -hmm. that I have inherited. 
So I've I've heard this a lot. People say that there's a predisposition to anxiety in people. What predisposes people to anxiety? Certain people. Very good question. Uh, one is exactly what I uh, mentioned. There is the genetics of us. Two is the behavior, the environment that we have grown in. We usually are reactive to it. Either we copy it or we go 180 degrees opposite of it. And also the experiences. I may have had many, many experiences that had brought anxiety to me. And it depends on what I've done with it. If I've just acknowledged and or concluded that life is full of anxiety and that I cannot do anything about and I've given up on that, then that makes me a very anxious person. Or I could use the same story. And that's the fascinating story of human beings. I can tell you exactly the same story and conclude completely different things. I can tell you, oh, that's nothing. I've gone through worse than that. Ah, we'll be fine. Or I can tell you, oh my God, I can't believe again. I got to go through it again. I don't have it in me. I can't handle it. So same pain, different kind of outcome and decision. And, and of course, disposition, as you called it. It's interesting when you were saying that I thought about this exercise that I did on a retreat with a with a coach a few months ago. And what she was trying to show us was that your body doesn't or like you don't actually register the event itself. You register your reaction to the event. So one event, if you had perceived it as positive or negative or, or life altering in a negative or positive way or whatever it was, that's what you will remember and if you if you look at it in a different way, if you frame it differently, then your relationship to that event is completely different. So what I hear that what you're saying is it has a lot to do with mindset. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I was uh, training um, police officers and they were telling me that when they go back and ask witnesses about the event that took place and they witnessed, almost none of them <laughs> remember the truth because sometimes yeah. they have it on the video and that's very interesting. And all of them want to help. I mean, these are like innocent people, bystanders that, that are, you know, being a witness, but almost none of them, because I tell you why. There is between me and the event, there stands a huge curtain called my filter and my beliefs mm -hmm. and my conclusions about life. So the same thing that you and I may look at mean two completely different things to us because we have different filters we have different experiences and we have different beliefs. Really that filter, that so-called reaction is based on the belief I have when I walk the streets of life. Yeah, which makes, which makes reality not reality, but our reality, our personal reality. Thank you. I actually teach on separation of truth and reality. There is one truth and there are as many human beings involved in that truth as there are realities. So mm -hmm. reality is your version of the truth. That's your reality. And my reality is my version of the truth. And of course, between us and the truth, there stands, as I said, our beliefs that have been formed based on our environment and our genetics and our experiences. Mm -hmm. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. So back to COVID and this wonderful time we live in. So there's this, there's this, maybe it's a misconception and you'll be better, you'll be the right person to, to address that. There's a, there's a belief that mindfulness is essentially meditation. 
I think a lot of people have started to associate the two almost equally. So mindfulness is meditation, meditation is mindfulness. But is that necessarily the case? And what would you... Actually, I'll let you answer that first part of the question first. Sure. So meditation is, as French call it, échantillon mm. of living mindfully. A sa- small sample. Yeah. Very small sample. So yeah. imagine that I sit for 20 minutes in the morning and what am I doing? Just, just think about it. And, and let me just allow me, because we're talking about mindfulness a lot and we haven't even defined it. And, and there are a lot many definitions. I've coined my own definition based on my teachings and experiences. And to me, mindfulness is awareness and acceptance of our present moment experience with curiosity and compassion. Mm. So there are five elements here. I need to be aware, present, accepting, and be curious and compassionate. Okay, so now I'm practicing that for 20 minutes. I'm sitting there observing my thoughts, observing the sensations of my body, observing the memories and events of my life with a sense of awareness and acceptance. These are the ones I cannot change. These are the ones I can change. It's okay, let's get get curious about it and see, are there other ways? Oh, this is really hurting. Can I bring some kindness and compassion to myself? So this is a beautiful practice. However, all of my work for 36 years has been, how can I bring that practice into my everyday life? And those are my teachings. How can I argue with my partner in life, my spouse, in a mindful way, because there's arguments, there are differences. How can I raise my child with a sense of mindfulness? How can I bring those elements and do my work and work with my team when there are discussions and when there are issues in a mindful way? Because that's the true test of mindfulness. Otherwise, I may be a fantastic meditator. I mean, nobody can meditate like me, but then get me going on the road, then get me one problem between me and in my romantic relationship and I will lose it and I will sound and act like I have no hold of myself, my mouth or my thoughts. Mm-hmm. So mindfulness is living with those, those five elements. Meditation is a tool that allows us to practice in a very small, contained and isolated way that practice, because when I'm meditating, it's me and me, usually. Mm. I'm not meditating uh, in, in, you know, in the middle of the street. But when I am living, I mean, I, in fact, I have a whole app, I've created a whole app based on mindful living, not mindful meditation, even though meditation is a small part of it. But how can I disagree with you? How can we talk about our different politics? How can I, if you're my friend, if, my, if you're my daughter, if you are my relative, How can I sit at a table and mindfully interact with you, even though we may have very different ideas, beliefs, practices in life? That's mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And so through that lens, what would you advise someone who's experiencing an unusual level, a really high level of anxiety around the current situation, around the pandemic, even someone who's experiencing a little bit of anxiety? I actually was teaching my last in-person class at UCLA 
when I think the bad news came out that we were closing down everything. It was back in, I think, early March of, mm. of 2020. And, and the tension in the room was just so high. You could just like, it was vibrating at a very tense level. And, and I so, sort of let go of the subject that I was supposed to teach. And I said, tell me about your anxiety. Tell me what makes you anxious. And the per first person said that the fact that we have no control over anything. And I said, we never had control over anything. That was an illusion. We, when did you have control over anything? Really? It's just showing us exactly what always has been. It's telling us you no longer can really ignore the fact that you have no control. The next person said, the fact that everything, this is so contagious. I said, everything is contagious. Have you ever entered the room with smile and kindness and see how kindness is contagious? Have you ever heard somebody saying something unkind and you saying, I'm sorry you feel so bad and see everything settle down and everybody goes to their heart. So my answer to somebody like that would be that honestly, not much has changed but everything has become so vividly available to us. Mm -hmm. And going to the principles that, that I mentioned is what am I not accepting? I'm not accepting that things are out of my control. And the only thing I can command is my inner world because the outer world is completely is out of my control. What can I control? I can't even say to people that I brought to this world, you should do this and that, called children. So, you know, there is nothing that is in my control, but everything is in my command inside of me. We're looking and focusing on this different side, on the wrong side of our lives. I want, instead of feeling good about this conversation, I want to control you. I want to send you, and people do that. Do you want to send us questions? I say no. I love questions that are spontaneous. But I can't control you. I don't know what you were going to ask me, but what I can command is that I get prepared at my end we always want to control it at the other end, and that's an impossibility, hence anxiety. So go in, command the inner world of you, and accept what you haven't accepted, the fact that we are in the middle of pandemic, the fact that we are all connected. I no longer can say my people and your people. You see there are no us and others. There is just us. So the question is, what am I not accepting? Where am I not being compassionate? Compassionate means being kind when things are difficult. And that could be with yourself. You're roughing and toughing it with yourself. I am not being compassionate. I'm not saying, hey, you've gone through hell. Honestly, last year, I got you know, COVID with my 89-year-old mother. We almost both died. I have lost 11 cousins and three friends. So has it been hard? Yes, I had to cut down on many things. I had to still keep my team because their livelihood depends on this. I didn't let go of any of my staff. But you know what? I'm here, sitting here in one piece, being extremely grateful. So I'm saying this because I don't want to sound like, oh, I'm this 
woman sitting in Beverly Hills, California, having a wonderful life and telling people, come on, people, put your act together. Mm. No, I'm in the middle of the suffering. And yet I have been able to work with it and say, that's something I cannot do anything about. These are the practices that need to be really used around this time. I need to be compassionate to myself and to others. People have been rougher. Driving has been crazy. And I know where it's coming from. I can be more compassionate with them when I am more compassionate with myself. So the place I want this friend or these friends to start is really bring compassion to themselves. Hey, it is hard. This is challenging. We haven't been prepared for this. This is going to go down in history. Mm. We're going to read about it. We don't know. And when people were in like a very interesting part of history, they didn't know. For them, it was like their life. But then there was a huge reference in the history books. They're going to ask you, where were you in 2020? How was it for you in 2020? And now we're going into 2021 and 2022. Where were you in those two, three years? What was happening for you? We're making history Let's make a very good history out of this. Let, let's make our, her stories very stronger and better than his stories, which means really we need to bring the feminine. We need to bring the heart into this. We need to open our hearts and know that not everything needs to be solved with our minds. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love the little her story reference. <laughs> and... If you had to break it down into some smaller, more actionable tips. First step always for me is to bring compassion. Invite compassion. What does that even mean, Mitra? What it means is to can we all have these attributes within us, but some of them have not been opened up and activated. That's the can you need to go to and activate it. How? By one thinking and getting curious about compassion, to bringing to your awareness a compassionate person that you know, or you know of, maybe in history, I, I don't know, Mother Teresa, mm. you know, somebody that, that I sort of felt or received as a compassionate person. And ask yourself, if this person was here, you know, how would this person hold the space for me? If this most compassionate person that I know or I know of was here sitting with me, what would they tell me? How would they hold the space for me? So that, just that question from the neuroscience aspect of the mind will take your attention to the compassion energy. So that's the first step. The second one is to really, really create pauses and quiet times. I actually suggest, and maybe I can just guide everybody right now, put one hand on your heart and put your other hand on top of your head as if you're holding yourself down. Exactly, you're doing it right. And just close your eyes for a second and just feel that first of, first of all allows you to close the circle of your energy. One hand on top of your head, one hand on your heart. And you do that so compassionately and kindly. And now I want you to connect to your breathing. Just notice your breath. Allow your breath to go deep into your belly. 
and just remind yourself that you're not alone. We are all in it together. And you have a way out of this. There is a way. And I'm finding my way. Just breathe gently. And there might be some words that you can use that would be uh, useful for you. I actually, my mother has a framed, beautiful writing that has 99 names of God. And every day I pick one name and, and, and I repeat that. Whatever goes home for you. You may say peace, you may say al-karim, al-rahim. You may say calm, you may say compassion, just Say a word that goes home for you. All is well. I'm fine. I'm here for myself. I'm not alone. This too will pass. And just breathe gently. And I want you to just, in this state, ask yourself, is there a better way? Is there a better way for me? And just allow the question to remain a question. Just breathe gently. And whenever you feel that you have settled, I invite you to bring a sense of smile to your face, even if it's mechanical smiling. Just see if you can just gently bring a smile. And if that doesn't work, believe it or not, what will really settle the body and the mind is a yawn. See if you can impose a yawn and just like, oh, mm, good. This is when biology changes psychology and energy. And now from this state of being, ask yourself, what are my options? Can I do this in a different way? And whenever you're ready and whenever the answer is somehow present to you, and by the way, the answer may come in shapes, colors, words, images, and it may come now, it may come later, but you have just asked the right question, which is half of your work. And whenever it feels right for you, you may open your eyes and come back. That's free. That, it felt like a bit of a hug. You know, when, in the beginning when I did it and you're like, you're closing off your energy and then having the pressure of my hand on my head, it felt, it felt almost like a strange hug. Yes, yes, it is no, because you're holding your energy. It's you're holding yourself. You're holding yourself. Yes. Um, yes. Actually, I, uh, I I read about this and I started to hug myself in the morning and it's so nice. I don't know if you've <laughs> ever hugged yourself, but it's just, it's so nice. <laughs> I've done a whole day long on that. Yes, yeah. yes, it is. It is very nice. But you see, we're quite self-contained and self-sufficient beings. Yeah. We just never used our own inner tools. True. So Definitely. that's what I suggest they do. 
instead of because anxiousness brings more anxiousness. And when you create this pause to invite the compassion itself and physically help yourself, then you asking a different question. I, I did a course on change your question, change your life. In the anxious moment, we are asking why this is happening to me. Why me? Why these events? Why? And by doing this practice, you're saying, is there another option? And as my wonderful teacher used to say, universe has never shortage of good answers. It's just most of the time we're asking wrong questions. I'm asking why me? Well, there's a 1,000 reasons for that, so that, mm. that will not come clear. But when I say, how can I move forward better? Oh, there's, there's like just few, three answers. Mm. And that can be very clear answer that I can receive. That was part one of our chat. Thanks for listening. In part two, we hone in on the impact that the pandemic has had on our relationships and how to use the science of mindfulness to mitigate that. That'll be out in a few days, so see you then. Thanks for listening today. If you're not familiar with goodness, head to www.goodness.me to access the online platform and articles and follow us at goodness on Instagram. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and share it and we'll see you next week.